and um, I, I'm thrilled when you get to, actually, I'm thrilled on two levels. I'm thrilled when you get to hear somebody else's, somebody else's voice besides mine, but I'm also thrilled when I can hear other people's voices. It's good to sit under the preaching of God's Word, and when you do the, the bulk of the preaching, uh, oftentimes, uh, it just, I need to hear it. So uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for the sermons that have been shared. Uh, we are continuing in our uh, study in Matthew, and uh, so I wanted to kind of just really, it's kind of like priming the pump, but it's also just kind of reminding you of where we've been. Uh, I've enjoyed our, the, our study thus far, but we really, uh, in Matthew 4, 12 through 25, which is the last sermon I preached uh, to you, uh, we, I entitled the, the Dawn of the King. And it's the idea of, of Jesus coming on the scene. Remember that when he was born in that, uh, that manger in Bethlehem, uh, it was obscure, there were a few people that took notice, and certainly there were some amazing things that surrounded that moment. For the, but for most of Jesus' life, all the way up until what we read in chapter 4, Jesus lived a life of obscurity. But at the end of there, which we read in the, uh, which uh, John just read for us at the end of chapter 4, I'm just going to remind us some of the things that we talked about. Uh, when, when Jesus came, when Jesus our King came, He brought light to, to our darkness. Now this is talking about what historically happened when Jesus was walking the earth, but this is also kind of what happens when we come to faith in Christ. He brought light to our darkness. In the text it talks about how the, the nations, right, the Gentiles have seen a great light. It's not just to the Jews anymore. It's to the, to the whole world. Uh, we talked about how when Jesus the King came, uh, He brought truth to our lives. That was the idea that He called sinners to repentance. And, and He said repent. And to repent means the idea of turning from something and turning, turning to something. Remember, turning not just away from it and staying still, but pursuing God. Right? As you turn from your sin and pursue God, uh, He brings truth to our lives. There are things in our life that we must repent of. And we must turn from those things and pursue Christ. And that's, that's what happens when you get saved. Right? When you come to a knowledge of who Jesus is, and that light comes into our life, it exposes all of our sin, and we turn, and it shows all those lies that we were pursuing. And it says, no longer turn to me and pursue Christ. When Jesus the King came, he, he brought direction to the wanderings of their uh, day, but he brings, he brings direction to our wanderings. Uh, this is the idea of, uh, in, in the text, uh, when, when Jesus said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. God has a very clear direction for us to follow. We talked about it in the Sunday school. We're focusing on missions, and we talked about William Carey today. Uh, just briefly, I mean, I could not exhaust, I could have I told them so much more, but... Really, it was just the idea. I, I, I gave them, actually, an impassioned plea for them to consider the call of God on their life. And I will do the same for you just this long. As I have, are you willing to consider that God has, might have something else for you than what you are currently living, what you're currently doing? Are you open to the, the, the truth that God changes lives and He calls people for His purposes? And the purpose He called us for yesterday may not be the exact same purpose he calls us for tomorrow. Think of Esther for such a time as this. God had called her in that position. But Mordecai told her, told her, but listen, if you're not going to do it, God will deliver because God is a faithful God. And so listen, if you are wondering about the direction your life is going, if you feel like you're wandering, right, come to Jesus. Grow deep in your relationship with him because the king has arrived and all these things are true for us. 
When Jesus the King came, uh, he bring, he, the fact that he came, it brings power to our weakness. This is the idea that he went through the land and he was healing people. He was healing all kinds of people. And this is where Jesus stepped out of obscurity and into popularity because when you see someone healing lifelong diseases, horrible diseases, you know, uh, when, when, when you see this happening in your presence, Jesus' Jesus's popularity grew and grew. And, uh, but listen, he's not done strengthening the weak. Uh, and many of us would probably say we're weak. And that's actually a good thing, by the way. Um, as we get into the text dealing with the Beatitudes, and I don't have this in my notes, so I'm just going to say it now. But a broken heart, a broken and a contrite spirit glorifies God. And I think that's much of what we're supposed to uh, engage in as we study the Beatitudes. But Jesus, the fact that he is king, he is able to bring power to whatever your weakness is, doesn't mean that you will get everything you want, but he will empower you in the power of the Holy Spirit to do and be who he want, what he wants you to do and who he wants you to be. And, and I hope that you will pursue Christ. And lastly, we talked about the dawn of the king brings people to our doorstep. I mean, honestly, his popularity grew, and people were coming from all over the place to see Jesus. And the reality is there are many new faces in this room, which is a wonderful thing. But I'll say there are many more out there that need to hear the gospel and need to be encouraged in the gospel. And so as King Jesus continues to be king, he will continue to work through his church which is manifested in all the, the local churches throughout the globe. And he will continue to bring people to doorsteps of churches. And praise God, he will bring people to our doorstep. And, and I think this is where I, I want to segue into uh, um, this. I want to focus a little bit more into this idea of people, being people, being in community with people. Um, we have the truth of the gospel, right? We, we know that to be true. We have this truth, and therefore we are to live in gospel community. Now, I think this is important because the Beatitudes, as we, as we study them, they are not lived on a, a, an individual person on a remote island. Uh, the Beatitudes are lived out in community. And so I wanted to just pause for a moment and just say, remind you that we are called to live in gospel community. Now, uh, Joe, and when he was uh, teaching uh, on gospel culture, uh, that's what we, living in gospel community is the idea of gospel culture. It's having a culture that highlights the gospel, that is, it is saturated with the gospel in terms of the way we live and the way we worship and the way we interact and the way we repent and the way we receive forgiveness and the way that we forgive others, right? This gospel culture we defined as beliefs, values, expectations, and regular actions that reflect Christ and his work. So this is, this is maybe it's different terminology than what you're used to, it's, but it's really what God has been saying says throughout his book. It's just gospel culture is not necessarily a term that was used 20, 30 years ago, but it is a healthy term, phrase, for us to, to understand this is what we are called to be and do. We have beliefs, we have values, we have expectations and regular actions that reflect Christ and his work. That's what's supposed to be true of our community. And I, I, I told Joe, I, I, I'd insert a little commercial right here. Uh, some of the ways that we're trying to uh, communicate 
this gospel culture and educate people on the gospel culture is through the beginnings classes and the community classes, which will be starting in two weeks. All right, so uh, sign up. If you haven't taken those classes, or maybe you want to take them again, they are, they are viable classes. They are classes that will actually challenge you to do this. And so we want to encourage you to take those classes. All right, end of commercial, but not the end of the encouragement. All right, so this idea of reflecting Christ and his work is now where we're going to uh, segue uh, into more of the sermon. Living in gospel culture means we are reflecting Jesus within our church and community, right? Uh, We're reflecting Jesus. That is a humbling thought. Would would you not agree that when, when, uh, listen, has it ever happened to you? Like you're so ticked off at the person in front of you because they're going so slow and you're, you're late for church and, and you're like cursing under your breath. And then they pull into the same church parking lot you pull into, right? Uh, or maybe you're the guy or gal or student that is on your way to church as well and, and, uh, and you cut someone off because you're in a hurry, and then they pull in behind you, right? I mean, we know these things are true. It happens. Listen, we may not have been reflecting Jesus at that moment, esteeming others better than ourselves and seeking to love others in a way that, that Jesus would love them. But for the, for the main part, of, uh, we have to understand, our role as children of God, as believers in Jesus Christ, is to reflect him in our life. Should we pause for prayer? Should we pause for a time of repentance, right? Just from this morning and how we haven't done that? I'm not going to, actually, but I'm saying we could because we're human and we, we have our failings. But this is what we're called to do. And we, we have this truth of the gospel in our lives, and we are supposed to be reflecting Jesus, all right? So let's go a step further. As we seek to reflect Jesus, we must grow in what I'm going to call today Christian virtue. We're going to grow in Christian virtue. Now, virtues, uh, throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, you'll see the virtue and vice lists in, in the different epistles. You know, I'm not going to get into them right now, but you'll see these are the ways you're supposed to live, these are the ways you're not supposed to live. Um, but, and we're not going to get into that today. What I'm going to say as we talk about the Beatitudes, we're, I'm, going to, I'm going to say that they are expressions of Christian virtue. And I think virtue is something that we're supposed to pursue in our life. The world would say virtue is good, but they don't define it the way we do. Uh, and they're not consistent in the way that they would live it out, and, as they would, uh, and they're not unanimous even on what it would be. But as we talk about virtue, we're talking about Christian virtue. We're talking about specifically those things that are true of us while we are in Christ, right? Since we are in Christ, these things are supposed to be true, and truth is a virtue, uh, that we are to pursue. So I've entitled this particular sermon as we look at Matthew 5, 1 through 16, all right, an invitation to Christian virtue. And I, I don't know, maybe over the summer you've received invitations to cookouts and, and breakfast next week, and maybe, you know, and, and maybe you accept some of the invitations, maybe you don't. But I hope that you'll accept this particular invitation, which I, I, the way I've kind of phrased the, the statements to come is, as, you know, if you're invited to a wedding, uh, the reality is you are also invited to the ceremony, 
uh, to the, all aspects of the ceremony. Uh, maybe you've also been invited to the reception, and therefore you're invited to the, uh, the announcement of the bride and groom. You're, you're invited to the cutting of the cake. You're invited to the throwing of the whatever you throw, you know, as they dismiss. You're invited to all aspects of that. So kind of that's, that's kind of the way I'm looking at this. You're, we are invited to Christian virtue, and we're going to go into the, the many ways that we're invited. So we're going to begin here uh, just getting in the context of the Beatitudes, and that is Matthew 5, 1 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So we're going to first of all just say there are multitudes. He is not in obscurity anymore. He is center stage. There are many, many people here. It doesn't give us an exact number, but there are multitudes. I don't think that we're talking about 15 or 20. I think we have to look at, consider hundreds at this point. And seeing the multitudes, and maybe more, but I, I don't know. Uh, uh, he says, since seeing these multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Again, there's all discussion about what mountain it might have been. The, the reality is nobody exactly knows. There's some ideas. But he was higher than them so that he could speak in a way where they could all hear him. He was on a mountain. And, oh, and by the way, this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount, which runs from this verse all the way through the end of chapter 7, is also seen as a parallel between Moses. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but as Moses went up into the mountain to receive the law, right, then he came down from the mountain, right? The Sermon on the Mount, it begins with Jesus going up to the mountain, and at the end, he's coming down from the mountain. There's a lot of, a lot of aspects of Matthew's writing in the, through the inspire, inspiration of the Holy Spirit where he draws in his community, which is primarily a Jewish community. It says he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, which was the normal position of teaching in that day, uh, not like we do today where there's a lectern or a pulpit or whatever. And it says his disciples came to him. And this is, this is kind of key because the multitudes are there. But what Jesus is about to say, he is speaking to his disciples primarily. Those who are following him, who desire to follow him. It says then he opened his mouth and taught them. Uh, this, is, this is a way of, of, of just kind of highlighting the importance. It's, it's kind of like it didn't say he, and he taught them. He opened his mouth and taught him. Jesus is portrayed throughout the gospel of Matthew as having authority. He is an authoritative figure. And when his mouth is open and his mouth is speaking words, he is teaching, there ought to be those who are listening. And so the way I phrase these slides, you will see this, uh, that he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and so I want to, before we get into what he said, I want to say, when Jesus teaches, I want think about this for a minute. When Jesus teaches, I think it's an invitation to be more like him. Think about it. Think about anything that Jesus was teaching. Did not he live it to perfection? Was he not the very example of what he was trying to teach? And so if he's saying, this is the way it is, he's basically saying, this is the way you ought to believe. This is the way you ought to act. This is the way that you ought to care for others. When he teaches, it's an invitation to be more like him. And if we're called to reflect Jesus, then certainly it means we're supposed to be more like him. Jesus invites us through the Beatitudes to grow in certain Christian virtues. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's certainly a list that we can apply to our lives today. It says he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and you will see that on every slide, that, te- that it'll go from 2-3 to 2-4 to 2-5 to 2-6. You'll see it across, verse 2 across the top the entire time. 
It says, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this idea of blessed is, is that word, that's where we're, we're getting. Uh, it's, it's actually from the Latin. Uh, Beatitudes is from the Latin beatus, I think it is. I, I may have pronounced that wrong. But what, what's the idea of this word blessed? It's the idea of enjoying favorable circumstances. You know, it's to be happy is usually, you know, be happy. Uh, uh, it's to be experiencing divine favor. And I think that's what we're, ex- we're seeing here. It's part of it. This word actually, and the Beatitudes in general, are there's, you can't just, just take it as one little slice. It's, it's deeper. It's wider. It's broader in its meaning. Because as we talk about this, it's certainly talking about God's approval, but it's not just God's approval. It is, it is his divine favor that, to be honest, if we all knew that, we were, that God was happy with us, we would be happy with that, right? We would be thrilled with that. So as we use this word blessed, I, I don't want to teach it too narrow. There was uh, one author uh, that I, I actually, it was a, a video class that I purchased so I could study this more. And he, he talked about this idea of it's not just talking about receiving. It's talking about living, being. When we are blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's, it's not because of, of what they are experiencing. It's because of who they are in Christ. And that's why this message is primarily geared for those who have come to faith in Christ. And so my, my prayer as is a private prayer most Sundays would be that those who do not know Christ yet would see this truth, the truth that we're going to talk about for the rest of our time together, and be drawn to uh, a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That you would see that your life is not found in these Beatitudes. For those that have practiced religion, have practiced a, a, the outward appearance, but they know inwardly that they're just not right with God. Listen, the Beatitudes is all about what's going on inside. And so I hope that's the way you'll approach it today as we look at it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These people, the poor in spirit, are experiencing the divine favor of God. But what does this poor in spirit mean? So I'm going to phrase it as, we are invited to be poor in spirit. It's obviously not talking about financial uh, uh, situation of life. It is a spiritual poorness. It is a, a spiritual poverty. And the way we are to understand the blessing of God this, and divine favor are those who, are, who are, have, have um, uh, spiritual poverty is the idea of understanding that they have not arrived in their own strength. They find their fulfillment. They find their riches in Christ. And so that's why I've... Uh, I've added, this kind of fleshes out the verse, we are invited to be poor in spirit, which allows us to know the riches of life in Christ. This is countercultural. This is not what the world experiences. The world says, climb the ladder. The world says, pursue riches. The world says, you know, step on the person to get better. The world says, do what you want. Just do it. It'll all work out in the end. No, it won't. The truth is, as we talk about the, the experiencing divine favor, it's the idea of, listen, embrace your spiritual poverty. It's the first step to understanding who Christ is and what he has done on your behalf. 
You have nothing to offer God. I had nothing to offer God when I came to faith in Him. I was crushed in spirit, as most of you were as well, when you came to understand that your sin had to be atoned for. And we just sang these wonderful songs. By the way, thank you, Aaron, and and the musicians and the singers. I mean, oh my word. just What a joyous, we're going to talk about joy in in a little bit, but what a joyous celebration of what we have in Christ by singing those songs. But we are actually, if we recognize our spiritual poverty, that we bring nothing to the table, that it's all of grace, all in Christ, then we are allowed to know the riches of life in Christ. It's the great reversal. It's like, you want to be rich? You got to be poor. You got to be poor in spirit. Now, I'm not talking, we're talking about spiritual riches too. We're not talking about financial riches, but let me be very clear. This is not prosperity gospel. This is the idea that, that those in the most poverty-stricken part of our world have joy, have riches in life in Christ. And that's what gets them through. If you want to consider how poor you are spiritually, uh, if you're finding your, your, your value in the things that you own or the, or the money in your bank, you're in danger of missing the riches of a life that's grounded in Christ. So this is what he says. He says, uh, well, I actually went to the next one. He says, you know, blessed are the poor. I, I don't think I've ever snorted during a sermon before, so hopefully you didn't hear that, but that's kind of freaked me out. All right. Um, he opened his mouth and taught them next, saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are people in this room. We celebrated a, 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 um, a graveside service, I say, because it was a, a wonderful family. Some of them in the room, I'm not going to use their names because that's not the point. The fact is there was mourning going on. As you're celebrating the, the, the life and death of a loved one, as a Christian, we understand the truth. We don't grieve as those who don't have hope. We have hope in Christ. We grieve, but we don't grieve uh, the same way. People are sorry that their loved one is gone and they have no clue what's going on from that point forward. What is the afterlife? They don't really ask those questions. We as believers, we grieve, we mourn in a different way. Yes, we're sorry we can't see them now, but we will see them in Christ. If they're in Christ and we're in Christ, we will see them and we will experience all the riches that that we have in Christ. And and so much of the Beatitudes is really... uh, an already-but-not-yet perspective. We, we are experiencing some of things, these things now, but we will ultimately experience them in the future. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And certainly the comfort that we're talking about here, the ultimate comfort, is, is in eternity. But let's just, I, I need to pause a little bit more on this word mourn. This isn't just talking about grieving death or mourning someone uh, who's died. It's, it's, it's grieving a loss, it's grieving a recognition of something. So, so I worded it this way. We are invited to grieve over what grieves God. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples and as the, as the, as the multitudes are listening, he's not just talking about being at a graveside. That's often the way people approach this text. Blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, I know some people who are mourning. No, we should be in the active process of grieving what grieves God? Because we shall be comforted. What are the things that grieve God? Well, let's just look at the next half of it. See, if we are invited to grieve whatever, what, what grieves God, it allows us to know His comfort now and for eternity. What grieves God? Well, sin grieves God. 
Abortion grieves God. Divorce grieves God. Speaking angrily to your spouse or children grieves God. My sinful nature, that, 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 that part of me that, that I, I, I manifest, and I, I don't think I did on the way in. It's just the illustration I used, but, but I'll say, the one I, illust, I illustrated maybe somehow this morning, it grieves God. Leaders who don't lead with godly wisdom, that grieves God. We're, we're, we're called to grieve over what grieves God. And when we characterize, when we, uh, when we allow this Christian virtue to come into our life, it is good for us to grieve what grieves God. It allows us to know His comfort. We, we are, some of us, intimately aware of the comfort of others during a time of death. But how many of us have loved ones who are still dead in their trespasses and sins? How many of us have friends and family who have not come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ? They, they have never recognized that their sin needs an atonement, which Jesus paid for them. They just need to allow him to apply it to their life. They need to come to faith in what he's done. But when, when, that, when that we're grieved over that and then we see that one come to faith, oh my word, the comfort of knowing that my child, my spouse, my grandparent, my sibling is right with God because we are grieving the way God grieves. God, God grieves over those who are spend eternity in hell. I, I don't. I can't. I do not believe He's happy about it. It is His perfect expression of wrath. But God so loved the world that He sent His Son into this world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we're invited to grieve. That is a Christian virtue, as much as poverty in spirit is. He says in verse 5, as he taught, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, this idea of meekness is we're invited to live a life of humility. There's many words that could be used for humility or for meekness. Uh, I'm using humility. But we're invited to a life of humility, which allows us to exercise confidence in God's promises. Humility, uh, as, um, as, as, a, as a Christian virtue, is something that, again, the world does not recognize. Humility is looked upon as weakness. And for sake of time, I think you, I think you know that part of it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. But think about this. A Christian virtue is to live a life of humility. To be humble is to recognize and to esteem others better than yourself. To, to be humble is to say, no, I do not know it all. Let me learn from you. Uh, let me consider your opinion about what the text of Scripture means. And, and, and let, me, let me consider, let me even consider the strength of the argument that I don't agree with. Maybe there's some strength in there that I haven't considered. There's, there's this idea of humility in all of our interactions with other people. But actually, a life of humility allows us to exercise confidence in God's promises. Is God sovereign or is he not? He is sovereign. You will never frustrate the will of God. God never has a plan B. You know that's my pet saying for talking about God's sovereignty. I have confidence in God. You can have confidence in God because he knows the end from the beginning. He transcends time. He's all-powerful. He knows all things, and He is sovereign. He is king. And when we 
come up against something where we want to say, no, I've got this one covered. Well, no. Humble yourself before God and say, no, actually, I may not know everything. Think about all the people who have named the time that Jesus was going to return. When Scripture says, don't name the time that Jesus is going to return. And then they, the time comes and passes and Jesus didn't return. And, and they are humbled. Well, don't, don't wait to be humbled. Be humble. Be humble. And allow, this allows us to take confidence in God's promises. God wins, folks. We don't have to know the day he's returning. We know he's returning. We don't have to know all the ins and outs of politics and all these different things. And we don't have to have the right answer all the time. What we have to have is a confidence in God's promise. Did God promise the gospel would come through the, the seed of the woman? He did. Did God promise Abraham that through uh, his seed uh, all the nations of the world would be blessed? He did. And did Jesus come? come? He did. God keeps his promises, and if we are humble, we can trust in those. He says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, another spiritual virtue, the way I put it, is we are invited to strongly desire righteousness. Right? So hunger, thirst, if I go along, that's going to be true of you, right? I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. But no, think about the poverty-stricken, uh, where there is no food or, or limited food, limited nourishment around, and, and, and then enter into that, they're not just like, well, I wish I could have another Oreo. By the way, Wit, if you're watching, I had two of your peanut butter Oreos, and I loved them yesterday. <laughs> All right? But I wasn't, it was a treat. I wasn't gasping for food or water. Jesus is saying, he's teaching and he's telling us God's divine favor is upon those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where is that in our life? I mean, in your individual life. Where is it in my life? Where is it in our corporate expression as a body? Are we strongly desiring righteousness? Pursuing it as we would pursue water crawling through miles of desert. It's not pursuing to be right. It's pursuing righteousness. Those things that God says are right and true and holy. When, when we are invited to strongly desire righteousness, it allows us to see the world as it will be at Christ's return. There is a day coming. There is a morning right? That changed everything. But there is a day coming when Jesus returns. And when he returns, sin will be dealt with. Righteousness will be, right? All we know, all we will know is righteousness because everything will be in Christ. And so if we want to uh, take this Christian virtue into our life, if we want to be characterized by strongly desiring this righteousness now, it will mold and shape the way we live in our community, the way we live in this church and outside our church into our broader community. It'll, way that, it'll change the way we live in our homes. It'll change the way we see the world. And it, it might give us a passion for the lost because they're trapped in this. Because they are not pursuing righteousness. No, there is not one pursuing righteousness. All have Departed. All have no desire, right, 
to, to come to faith in God. There's no one who seeks after God. But God draws them to himself. And when we come to this relationship as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus, this ought to be a Christian virtue we adopt into our life and to strongly desire to, to as, thir- as water and food, and it will allow, it'll allow us to see the world in a different way, but ultimately the way it will be for eternity. Next, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, I personally love this one. All right, this is it's very simple, but it's the idea we are invited to, to a life of active mercy. Uh, just look at the word. Blessed are the merciful. Oh, I, I'm merciful. Are you? <laughs> right? Am I? Well, I give. You know, I give to this charity. I give to this charity. I'm like, true, and it's good. But don't draw any lines when it comes to mercy. Just that line for God's mercy is way out there, and we haven't reached it yet, right? Blessed are the merciful. It's the idea of, a, of a, this of this Christian virtue, if we have active mercy, daily, living, breathing mercy on those who are around us, those who are far from us, those who love us, those who hate us. We are invited to a life of active mercy, which allows us to glimpse, uh, a glimpse of God's promised mercy upon us. Now, we know that he is already, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're a child of God. But listen, the full expression of the mercy that we will experience is when Jesus returns and we stand before God in righteousness and there is, there is no more sin. That, that we still look forward to that day. We rejoice to see that day coming, but it is not here yet. And so we are called as disciples of Jesus Christ to reflect him and to incorporate these spiritual virtues into our life. And we are supposed to be active actively merciful. So that might speak to us and those of us who have interest in social issues and, and, and the things that are going on in our world. You know, don't characterize people who are, are interested in, in social uh, uh, issues as somehow being other than Christian, right? I mean, it may be the very segue into a spiritual discussion. They have a concern for the planet. Well, so should we. But our concern for the planet is, is the fact that it's going to experience the refining fire of God. And, and, and this person needs to come to repentance. So yes, be, be concerned about that. Be concerned about all the different social issues that are around there. But listen, when, when we are able to get a glimpse of that, we understand God's promised mercy to us a little bit better. But it's a segue for us to invite others to experience the mercy of God. If we are actively merciful people will come to know Christ as the doors of the gospel open to them as you act in mercy and speak truth. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This idea of pure in heart is, is the way I phrase it. We are invited to a life of genuine devotion. We come here on Sunday morning. And, P, and I, for the first 18 plus years of my life, I came to a, to a room sort of kind of like this, right? I called it worship, but it was not genuine. It was not sincere. It was uninformed. It was ignorant devotion. I was coming and I was saying the name of Jesus and I was praying scripture and I was doing those things, but I did not know Christ. And so 
We are invited to a life of genuine devotion, as he says, the pure in heart. God's divine favor is upon those who are sincere internally, who are genuine in their devotion. It says, it says that they will see God. And so, uh, again, we are invited to a life of genuine devotion, which allows us to see God at work now and, again, ultimately in eternity. Have you had a God sighting lately? I know you have. The, the things that we just talked about one with little Noah, right? 104 temperature for a child who's just a couple days old kills most children. We pray to a God who knows. And we have a God who can heal and cure. And the world will say, no, he just got over his fever. His body fought it off. You think? I beg to differ. My faith is, and my devotion is, is aimed towards a God who is able to do these things. And for so many years of my young life, I came not knowing, and then I came to know. And we talked about how do you know that you can know. Well, this, this is all the gospel. And how you can know that you can know Jesus is because it says that when you have faith in him, he, ex- he expects the spiritual virtue of genuine devotion. Don't come to church double-minded. A double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. You can't live in the world and live in, in Christ. You are called to live in Christ all the time in every area of life. There's not one single area that you can keep to yourself, that you can hide away. Lay it all at the altar. Don't hold anything back. Come with genuine devotion. This is, this is when you come to church, when you come to the worship, when you come to be part of this community. Don't put on airs. Don't wear the mask in the sense of the spiritual mask. I, I told a sister in Christ that I was wearing a mask a few months ago. And she said, you don't look like you're doing so well. I'm like, I'm not. Apparently my mask has slipped. And sometimes you've got to put on a mask to get through the moment, Right? Uh, but I'll tell you, for the most part, I'm saying, don't wear the, the duplicitous mask that would say, I'm good with God, and you're not. We are invited to a life of genuine devotion, which allows us to see God at work. Is there anything greater than see God at work in your life, the life of someone you love? But we will ultimately see it for eternity. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Um, we are invited to bring peace to relationships. Now, this is something that may not occur to you. But as we reflect Christ in our relationships, as we reflect Christ in our own life and as a, and as a community of believers, we are called to bring peace to relationships. I would ask you to, to evaluate over the next week how often you're involved in a discussion that would tear someone else down if they were, not, if they were in the room, right? Would you, I mean, in other words, you're tearing people down, but if they were standing there, you would never say it. We, we are often unknowingly, I, uh, we, we've been desensitized to the way that we're not seeking to bring peace. We actually aren't, you know, we should not be divided as a body. We shouldn't be. We're uh, it's constantly talked about unity. And, and I, you know, we don't always do it well, but that's, that's the pursuit. But the, the, the point here is that this spiritual virtue is what's going to transform any church. This spiritual virtue is, the, the Christian virtue is to, 
bring peace to relationships. You know a brother and, Christer, a brother and sister or two brothers or two sisters are, are at odds? Jump in, both feet, and bring peace. It's not someone else's job. It is you reflecting Christ, and it's scary, but it's godly. If we are to do this, it allows us to share in the work of Christ. Christ is in the, the business of reconciling people to, to his Father, right? God is a holy God. He sent his Son into the world to, to die for the sins of all of us and of all of mankind so that there can be a reconciliation between God and man. That same relationship that existed in the garden before the fall. And when we bring two people or groups of people together, we are participating in the work of God. It's, it's, it's beautiful. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Many people believe, just a short note, that verse 3 to verse 10 kind of culminates the Beatitudes. I don't necessarily hold that opinion, but I do say there is. It's the idea of both 3 and 10 talk about Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's definitely something going on there, some bookends to a, to a, a point for sure. But, but uh, what I see is that when you, get, when you get to verse 10, it culminates, blessed are those. When we get to verse 11, it becomes a little bit more personal. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the idea that we are invited to suffer well for following Jesus, all right? when or for, right? We are invited to suffer, but to suffer well, which makes us, uh, which marks us as citizens of God's kingdom. It is, the world doesn't understand Christians when they go through hard times and they suffer, whether it be persecution. I still think of that pastor who was on the road one day with his whole family in the van and uh, something fell off a, a big truck, bounced on the road, hit his van, the van, it was instantly engulfed in flames. They managed to get the car off to the side, and they saved, I think, they pulled a few kids out before they couldn't go back in. And I think only one of maybe six kids, maybe two kids survived. What a horrific story, right? The, the news is, is waiting for their opportunity to interview this family, and what do they do? They praise God and trust in His will. Same was true of the, the shooting. This, this, this uh, uh, young man was uh, participating in his Bible study with a, a bunch of older people, and, and they were loving on him, and he pulls out a gun and starts shooting them. And then the news shows up, and the reporters show up to talk to the family of those who are deceased. And what do they do? They say, I forg we forgive that man for what he did because we are in Christ. Folks, listen, we are invited to suffer well for following Jesus. Certainly it's by following Jesus we have the strength to suffer well, but it's the idea also it's we are called to incorporate this as a spiritual virtue in our life. When hard times come, stop. Take an account for who you are and what God might be trying to get accomplished in your life and in the life of others. Your hardship may be the, the key that unlocks the door to salvation for somebody else. But it marks us as citizens of God's kingdom because only God's people do this. So when Jesus teaches, it's an invitation to be more like him. And as we finish off, and we'll finish off rather quickly here, when Jesus teaches, it's an invitation to be more like him. And to be more like Jesus actually invites persecution, does it not? This is why verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. 
And then when we get in, then, then he kind of drills down a little bit on this. And he says, being more like Jesus than my vice persecution. Blessed are you. And it's not blessed are those. Blessed are those people. Now he's looking at his disciples square in the eye. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. You are experiencing the divine favor of God. When this is happening to you, and this is, honestly, this is where many, I've heard Christians kind of stop at this point, and I'm like, no, there's more. There's more. Yeah, yeah, I'm being persecuted for my political beliefs. Oh, I'm being persecuted for uh, uh, something I said, you know, and, and, and it's like, no, blessed, divine favors upon those when they are reviling, persecuting, saying all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. This is talking about living out our faith. We are going to experience the persecution, the reviling, and the false statements of the people in the world because we are Christians. And when we are living out our faith and these things happen, God says, you, you are experiencing my divine favor. It doesn't feel like your divine favor, God. No, no, no. It, it, it is. It is upon you. Because you are doing this for my sake. The only reason you are experiencing these things is because you are trying to live a life that glorifies me. Being more like Jesus invites persecution. Nevertheless, Jesus says, rejoice. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. We've read these verses. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying, listen, you're going through persecution? Yeah, my, all my people have gone through persecution. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when persecution of that type comes into your life. Being more like Jesus invites persecution. Nevertheless, persevere. He gives an illustration. You are the salt of the earth. Now, there's all kinds of discussion about what kind of salt and what, what, what it's saying, listen, let's just talk about it. In that day, salt was not so much sought after it is in our world. Meat was packed in it. There were tons of salt. And so it, it was probably too salty at times. But he's saying, listen, there is this preserving nature of salt that you all understand. And I'm saying that that's a way of saying, listen, you're salt. Salt will allow meat to stay fresh. Salt is a a persevering substance. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, what is it saying? If somehow you submit or you uh, cave to the persecution, if you're not rejoicing in it, it's like, how shall it be seasoned? Right? I mean, you're going through these things. You have the opportunity to rejoice. He's saying, listen, you're salt. It's good for nothing. If you don't persevere, if you don't make these spiritual uh, virtues part of your life, it'll be difficult for you to persevere. He's saying, no, you're going to experience a persecution. In Christ, you are able to persevere. You are the salt of the earth. He says, be more like Jesus, which invites persecution. Nevertheless, radiate. (laughs) Radiate what? Radiate the light of Christ. This is, our, this is the, the verses that we have looked at quite a bit. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden. i got to pause here. I, I'm rushing, and I know. I'm going long. It's okay. All right? But we're almost done. 
You are the light of the world. A city. A city is not a single light. This little light of mine, I will let it shine. Yeah. Well, if we're all letting that light shine, right? It says, uh, it's, it, it cannot be, they don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. We, we, we've talked about that. You put it on a lampstand. But it's a city. It's many, many lights. It's, it's the corporate nature of the church. He says, you are the light of the world. Radiate the light of Christ. And then the final verse that we'll look at is, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This should sound familiar to you if you have been here for any length of time and if you will read the slides that go before and after the service. Because this is our theme for this year. This is our vision for 2023. Shine a light. Christ in us reveals Christ to our community. Do you believe it? Because the revealing of Christ to our community is enhanced when we, indo- when we incorporate these Christian virtues into our life. Would you accept the invitation of Jesus Christ As he's teaching, he's telling us, this is the way it is. You ought to get on board. Would you you pray that that God would give you the strength to incorporate dates into into your life and to be lived out in the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that we might actually succeed at our community, our community seeing Christ in us? Would you pray that? And if you do not know, Christ, if you would say, I don't have Christ in me, I'm not, I'm not a child of God, I'm not a Christian, would you come to faith in him today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together. I'm thankful, Father, for your word and how it, it really does get into the places nothing else can get into. It exposes our sin, it exposes our depravity, it exposes our weak arguments for a lack of faith. It exposes our, our weak arguments, uh, our beliefs that we're allowed to be angry and act ungodly at times, and somehow it's just okay to be that way. That is not who we are called to be. We are called to reflect Christ. And certainly these virtues are the first ones Jesus shares with us on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's enough for us to wrestle with, for certainly today and this week. But Father, I pray that we would wrestle. And we would look ourselves in the mirror, read the text, look ourselves in the mirror and say, is it true? Read the next one, look in the mirror and say, is it true? Am I truly seeking to live out these Christian virtues to your glory and for my growth? I pray, Father, that we would be honest with you as we work through that exercise. Father, I do pray if anyone here today does not know Christ, they have never come to a humility that would say their sin is wrong, their sin is enough reason for you to send them to hell, their sin is not a minor thing. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction of spirit to any individual who might be deceived that way and lead them to the path of life which is only found in the forgiveness that is bestowed upon those who come to faith in Jesus.
and who he is and what he's done. If we have the Son, we have life. If we do not have the Son, we do not have life. Father, I pray that you would be glorified as um, your people respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think we're forgoing a song, and we're going to go ahead and have Pastor Joe.